So I spent some time as a VC, and even though before that all the knees on my jeans were worn out from begging for money as an entrepreneur, I was on the other side of the table. And you really build up a filter and a truffle nose for what's special, what's fundable, and what rings the right bells and is the right flags, not the red flags. Before any world-changing innovation, there was a moment, an event, a realization that sparked the idea. Before It Happened is a show about that idea. Each week, we take a deep dive into a singular lightbulb moment that inspired the visionaries to push forward and change our lives. I'm your host, Donna Laughlin. Nearly 20 years ago, I launched a public relations firm with the sole purpose of helping visionaries tell their stories to the world. Now, two decades later, I want to share those stories and more with you. This podcast takes you on a journey before it happened with the innovators who imagine and are still imagining the future. Ever since I was a child, I was curious about so many things. I spent hours in the garage at science fairs, sifting through popular science, popular mechanics, and pretty much any journal I could get my hands on, exploring and discovering how things work from transportation and AI to just about anything you can put in your home, office, or pocket. On this show, you'll hear from the innovators themselves as they tell their stories of how they brought those visions to life. Grab your passport and let's go on a journey together. My guest today has had a remarkable career and an even more remarkable journey to become one of the leading voices on the future of mobility around the world. Vitaly Galom is a partner with the global investment banking firm Drake Star Partners, but he took a non-traditional path to the world of investment banking and venture capital. He spent much of his career trying to be the kind of entrepreneur he now invests in. Vitaly was a serial founder, launching several startups of his own before he turned 40. Each had varying degrees of success, but the lessons he learned as a young entrepreneur have positioned him as an important Silicon Valley thought leader and an expert in the underexplored topic of mental health and burnout among tech industry founders. Today, he specializes in all things transportation, which made our conversation even more fascinating as he walked me through some of the most exciting developments we can all expect to see in the near future. Vitaly was born in what we now know as Odessa, Ukraine, but for much of his childhood, it was still the Soviet Union. During the Cold War, his family tried several times to leave the Soviet Union through official channels and immigrate to the West, but it wasn't until 1989 that they were finally allowed to leave. The Cologne family was Jewish and were offered the choice of going to Israel, New York, Los Angeles, or San Francisco. They eventually settled in Cupertino, right in the heart of Silicon Valley. And my parents had a choice to go to Israel, go to New York, L.A., or San Francisco. They almost randomly chose San Francisco. They had some remote friends here. And we went through this journey. We first, we drove over to the border, Uzhgorod, Ukraine. We crossed the border there. There's a long story I talk about in my little TED Talk about how I almost narked on my parents trying to take anything of value with them because all, all we were allowed to take with us was two suitcases per person and $800 worth that, that their whole life. That's what they packed up 
with us and made the journey by bus to Austria, to Vienna, where we spent about a month or so. And there was a lot of shock in that, that it was just a big culture shock. So I've been to Soviet Union, I, I've been to Russia, I've been to the now re- Ukraine. So not in that period of time which you were living there, but you know I do recall history and have experience. So I do have a little bit of a grounding bar and my kids are from there. What was it like in that era, in that period of time when you were a child in terms of accessibility and, you know, the things that, you know, school, you know, what it was like at school and, and what were your social stimulus as part of your upbringing there? We had a very close-knit family. It was my mom's mom, my grandma, my brother, myself and us and our parents. And we lived together in a, in a communal apartment. It was a historic building that had, you know, gargoyles on the ceiling and all these things. It was kind of Victorian period, but it was chopped up to a communal apartment with five different families sharing one kitchen, one bathroom, right? So you can imagine that. Of course, I didn't know any different. I was a kid, you know, what do I know? You know, as far as going to school, uniformed kids in school, pretty rigorous in the Soviet times, from what I remember. And I was actually in an experimental school that was trilingual. So I spent first, second grade, it was a Russian, Ukrainian, and English-speaking school. We even had foreign exchange students there, I remember. So that was, you know, that was the only thing I knew, but that was very, very unique for Soviet Union, especially in the late 80s. What was your favorite subject? I don't remember then what my favorite subjects were, but through schooling later, I always liked history. That was my favorite. And I should say also, my mom was teaching music there. So very early on, I got involved. She was a music teacher in schools. My dad was a mechanical engineer. When we moved here, my mom got requalified and became a, a medical assistant. So went kind of into healthcare and spent a career there, you know, her whole career here in that space. So what were your first impressions of the United States? There's a great story for me, you know, as uh, again, as, as a kid at that age, these things don't really register. What was interesting that one of our family stories is my grandma came to pick me up from school one day and she was in shock that all the kids were sitting on the floor and the teacher was sitting on the desk teaching, right? The environment that I came from, the the kind of the Soviet rigorous environment, everybody's in uniform, you know, sitting with their hands on their desk and raising one hand and, you know, very, very regimented environment. But that was kind of where it started. And I had a very, very nice teacher. There was no ESL class in my school. So I was plunked right into a normal third grade class, not speaking any English really, you know, whatever I had in first, second grade didn't really stick. So started from scratch, but somehow miraculously by the end of that school year, by the end of May, beginning of June, I was pretty fluent in English. So that's how it all started. So then you advanced to high school and you're at the same school that Steve Jobs went to. Tell me about that. Was that like an iconic environment at the school? You know, it was the the legend, you know, Steve Jobs in the hallways and and did that shape or inspire you or or is it even whispered at school? I'm just curious. I'll remind our listeners when I was in high school in the 90s, Apple wasn't what it is today, not even close. Apple was on the ropes. It was almost out of business multiple times. Steve Jobs came back, what, 97 or so? So I was right in the midst of high school then. And although we had Macs, you know, all over our school because Apple donated all the computers and wanted to ingrain Macs in us, this was the the days of the Mac clones, that really stupid strategy <laughs> that he killed off when he returned. So it was really nothing special, but there was a lot of history 
I remember when I was in high school, I was also tutoring Mike Malone's kids, Mike Malone, the author. And he wrote a great book on Apple, almost talking about how Apple used to be great and is not anymore, called The Infinite. I think it was called The Infinite Loop, how the world's craziest company went crazy, something like that. So went insane. This is pre-iTunes, pre-iPod, pre-iPad, pre-any of the eyes. <laughs> It was before, really, or just when uh, Steve Jobs returned to Apple, when Apple was still, you know, a tiny, tiny little company before everything that everybody today takes for granted with the, you know, most important company, arguably, in the world. So what about college? What did you study? I went on to uh, Santa Clara University, where I started college, and my favorite class there was United States Foreign Policy post-World War II with a three-star general as the professor. And it was really fascinating just to kind of read up. Every week, it was a small class. Every week, we had a, a different conflict that we were reading. Everybody was reading a different book, so you couldn't really bullshit your way through that one. But every week, everybody read a different book on the same conflict, and then we would compare. So I don't know. History has always been really fascinating to me. So let's go back to your history. You're in high school. You mentioned tutoring, but you also worked at Kinko's. So indeed, I was the youngest employee of Kinko's. And, and the way that came about is that I became fascinated with cars, right? So we can talk about that subject. But I, I became fascinated, like many teenage boys, with cars. I was begging my parents. I really wanted a sports car. They really were very, I would say, lower middle class at that point. And they said, well, if you want a sports car, you have to go and get a job and earn it. So those days, you can get your license at 16 and really without restrictions. And I was determined on my 16th birthday, I'll get my license and I'll get my car shortly after and be off to the races. No pun intended. So I got into music very early on. I was playing with my band and playing drums. And I kind of became a self-taught designer, designed all of our flyers, album covers, etc. We were quite successful for uh, young guys, played uh, every single club in Bay Area when we were, by the time we were 15. And with those skills, I went to Kinko's and kind of bullshitted my way and became the designer at Kinko's for a period of time. And I'm still friends with Jennifer, who hired me there, who's my boss. And that's kind of where it all started. So you're a teenager in high school. You're consulting people coming in that need what, business cards, corporate brochures. What type of jobs are you taking? From the basics to the more complex, uh, when the World Wide Web hit, I, I quickly learned how to design websites. And by the time I graduated high school, I was actually a pretty overpaid young consultant. I, I looked a little bit older. I always had, you know, had a little mustache from the time I was, I don't know, 13 or 14. So I kind of faked it. And I was always the youngest kid, youngest guy out there and got into that early. So while my friends were, you know, making pizzas and delivering pizzas or working at Starbucks, I was out there, you know, in an office, uh, crunching away on documents and websites and all of that. Was it Kinko's in Cupertino right off of De Anza or That's the one. Yep. Yep. I, I know that. I probably would, I probably was your customer. I'd probably come up with stacks of press kits and stuff. So that's a great. So you you learned these skills. Was there anything with the from Kinko's that, that you carried into your your next phase going into college? Well, the funny thing is that we got this idea, my dad, you know, part of my entrepreneurial bug came from my dad, who was always trying to do something new and innovative. And he saw, you know, he was picking me up from work one day before I could even drive. And he saw, you know, how busy it was. And he got fascinated with it. He was involved with print shops back in Soviet Union with his brother. So he was a little bit familiar. And we decided very quickly to start our own print shop. 
And that was something that we did. And that was the first real business, let's say, that I was involved with starting and learned a lot of lessons uh, what not to do. My dad is a mechanical engineer, not a trained entrepreneur. So we made lots of mistakes together. And working with your father is a very, very difficult thing to do because even if you're right, he's still your father and he's the boss. So somewhere in there, my parents also told me in high school, I was a little bit rebellious and, and very independent and dying to grow up very early. At some point, they told me, if you get straight A's, you can do whatever you want. So I got straight A's and uh, also got into the business of throwing raves. So my 18th birthday was 4,000 kids dancing to <laughs> electronic music in a warehouse in Oakland. So I did a lot of really interesting things early on. I just had this image of like risky business in your backyard, but it was in a, in a third party place, which is probably a good idea. The funny thing is, is I was signing the lease agreements as a 17 year old, knowing that the contracts weren't enforceable. I don't know. I think the statute of limitations is up on that one, but we did some uh, really crafty things and learned a lot about how to sell, how to do, how to organize and kind of looking back at it, we, we pulled off some really interesting things. So in this period of time, my understanding is that you had a high school friend that his father was the founder of Paragraph. Was that high school? Yes. That was actually before high school. So I was in a Super 6 program. So back in the day, there was a GATE program in California, Gifted and Talented Education. So I took a test and they accelerated me, put me into a Super 6 class in middle school. And I met my friend Alex, still, you know, very close friends to this day. We we're best men at each other's weddings. He and I met and he was fresh off the boat. They just arrived from Moscow. His uh, father, Stepan Tachikov, who was the uh, founder of Paragraph, who is famous for a lot of really interesting things. The Clio, they did the handwriting recognition for the Apple Newton back then, a number of different things. And then much of that team went on to, to create Evernote. So that's probably their legacy there. But Alex and I, we were pretty nerdy. And my father was a mechanical engineer, a draftsman. So he had a pretty powerful computer, one of the first 486s at home. And that allowed me to stay up all night, turn off all the ringers, uh, get the modem turned on and, and install a bulletin board system, a BBS. This is pre-World Wide Web. So we can then, you know, we, we stayed up till, I don't know, three, four in the morning as, you know, 12, 13 year olds calling into BBSs and chatting or exchanging files or letting people dial into ours. And Alex's dad noticed we were doing this and his wisdom, he wanted to support us and he got some ideas from us. We actually tried to put together a bulletin board system to connect school kids in, in Moscow with ones in Silicon Valley. And this is pre-World Wide Web. So then World Wide Web hit and Alex and I, we would run around the Paragraph office, got an opportunity to meet some interesting people got to an opportunity to go to Computer World or Compu World, I forget the name of the conference now, and present some of these products. And then later, uh, part of Paragraph was sold off to Silicon Graphics, and, and another part of it kind of chipped off and still exists that does uh, VRML, so 3D websites very early on. So it was quite an experience, and Alex and I went on. He went to college in Colorado. I stayed back here. I worked full-time through college. And then we ended up starting a design firm together and, and working on websites for clients. Where were you working through college? 
So the interesting thing is that summer after high school, I got pretty much a full-time job designing websites and making much more money than an 18-year-old should be. And I started at Santa Clara University and quickly got recruited by different firms. First, Hitachi Data Systems wanted to hire me as the information global information architect as an 18-year-old. Then I think they realized how old I was. So my tenure there wasn't very long, but... Uh, <laughs> how much were you getting for a website? Oh, you know, into the for small business websites, a couple of thousand, you know, for bigger projects, you know, into the tens of thousands. March 1st uh, also made me an offer, but I ended up at a, at a startup called Spin Circuit, which was uh, funded by HP. Carly Fiorina wrote the check herself or authorized the deal, and Cadence and Flextronics were the other investors. So that was my first true startup experience. That was the dot com days. So the CTO who recruited me actually asked me to take time off college. So I took a semester off. We rode the roller coaster up, and then the dot com crash came. Everything was very, very bad. And I re enrolled <laughs> in college uh, while still uh, working full time. The crazy thing in that period of time is that, you know, this, as you mentioned, it was, you know, pre internet, World Wide Web. I mean, consumers did not have access. So the fact that you were a teenager and you're hanging out in BBSs, which content could be somewhat questionable in some of the BBSs, right? I think ALL was probably barely an infant at that time as well. Yeah, AOL was coming up. I think the first one we had at home was Prodigy. So I, I begged my parents for a Prodigy subscription. That's what we started with. I remember how amazing and awesome it was to be in this uh, walled garden of Prodigy. And then at some point, we tried CompuServe. AOL was sending out floppies where people would tile their bathrooms with uh, AOL floppies, if you remember. <laughs> so And then CDs later. And they would give the free minutes, right? It was metered how many minutes you're buying to, to be online. So I tried all those and then doing BBSs in parallel. You know, I was quite a geeky kid. That's what I was focused on. Let's go back to your father. What wisdom did you learn by working with your father? You said that at the end of the day, he was still your father. But what did you learn from that engagement that you took into your, your next phase and in going into college? It's difficult to spot it when you're in the midst of it and you're a teenager, but it's much easier looking back at it when you're an adult and, you're, and you have your own children, right? You start appreciating your parents instantly much more and what they went through. I'm forever grateful that they brought my brother and I to this country and gave us a completely different destiny, completely different future. Maybe if they moved to LA, I would have been a rock star, but c'est la vie. I did learn one thing is that, you know, when you grow up and you look up at your parents, you think your parents, they're all knowing, right? Uh, you can't help but feel that way as a kid. But then you realize that especially as you get an adult, become an adult, you got to keep learning. I mean, things change so quickly and mistakes can be made. It was a lot of stress on my father, I'm sure, using credit cards to finance that business. I mean, the things he, he was willing to do, he was a real, real entrepreneur. I would have never, <laughs> I would have never recommended, knowing what I know now, to do a lot of the things that he was willing to do to make it all work. What's well, a huge sacrifice to leave your home country, come start totally fresh, right? then to go into this entrepreneurship role, which is really different working for somebody to working for yourself. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, you know, there's a couple of different interesting parallels here. So why do immigrants often become entrepreneurs is that for the same reason that young people become entrepreneurs, they are not used to a certain lifestyle. They're not weighed down by responsibilities and commitments and other people depending them on them in the same way 
on that lifestyle. So they're willing to take the big risks. And, you know, when you have an option that says, if you choose the red pill <laughs> or the blue pill, you know, one way you go and you build yourself a corporate life and it's a very low risk. But on the other hand, you can go and build something fantastic and big and become rich and, and all these stories. And when you don't have much, you're not going to lose anything, right? What, what is there to lose? You're starting from zero anyway. That's really the American dream, right? It's It has a positive and negative. I mean, the positive side, this is what motivates people to do things that, you know, looking back, you scratch your head and wonder how was it possible to pull this off. On the other hand, we have a country full of temporarily inconvenienced millionaires who have been convinced by politicians to support things that are 180 degrees against their own economic interests because they think that one day they too will be on the Forbes list, even if they, you know, barely have a high school education and and they're barely surviving. So yeah, it's a it's an interesting journey. So let's talk about Keen. Yeah, so Keen Systems was a company that I started. So after the print shop, I spent a few years there, learned how to sell, how to build a sales team, etc. At some point, my, my father actually went off and did a medical device startup. So I took over the printing business with a partner and grew that substantially, learned a lot about business and scaling. But I was then pulled back to kind of really focus on design. So I spent a few years purely focusing on a company called Sputnik that I started, which was a design firm, grew that to several offices and all those things and, and a good team. And at one point, we were helping so many startups create certain things, right? Create materials. And we were just a service provider. At a certain point, I said, you know what? We can do what they're doing. I can do what they're doing. I can build a product. So I was kind of bored with this, you know, eat what you kill 18 hours a day, six days a week, agency business that as soon as you stop selling, you're done. You're done earning. And I want to build a product and I thought it would be very easy. So I wrote up a kind of a, a white paper for myself and designed what I thought was missing, which was a true software as a service e-commerce platform for the printing industry, for the graphic arts industry. Because I saw firsthand, I saw how difficult that process is in doing estimates, in getting files, in getting proofs and all these things and, and kind of delivering the product. Ultimately, it's a manufacturing business, so there's a lot of different steps that go into it. And designed that myself. As a designer, I, I remember I still have a document somewhere, but it's got a 200-page spec. I did all the wireframes, all, all these things, all the heavy lifting, and started recruiting team. Ended up raising a few million dollars over time. Uh, it was quite a struggle, quite a struggle. At that point, I had my two young kids already. And we were in the depth of the financial crisis then too. So very difficult to raise capital then. So maybe my timing wasn't great. This was, by the time I got going, it was like 2009, 2010, really in the thick of it. And it was it was quite a challenge learning everything at once. And ultimately, I ended up selling the company for less than I raised. In 2015, just kind of after six years, really grinding on something, you do run out of gas. And this is not talked about enough. And this is, uh, this is something that I focused on since is that for entrepreneurs, when you're working on something like this, it's very easy if you're grinding on something seven days a week for a long, long time is for your personal identity to be completely merged with one of your startup. And when things don't go well, or you have a bad day, and in startup world, you have a lot more bad days than good, it really affects you personally. And it was very difficult, as you can imagine, with two young kids. One, around the same time, I found out had autism, dealing with all these things and trying to build a business, very, very difficult. So quite a journey and kind of was very formative for me. Most of what I know, I, I probably learned in that period from business and startups. And, and that's something I pass on to other founders now. 
passing wisdom on to other founders would become a major part of Vitaly's career arc. In 2013, he found himself back in the Ukraine building out an engineering team. He was approached by a number of accelerators who worked with companies in Central and Eastern Europe. They told him there was a need for more advisors in the region, and Vitaly naturally began to gravitate towards mentorship. The original plan was to raise a fund of his own to invest in startups. Instead, he started hosting conferences and workshops across Europe. He called the venture CCC Startups, and over two years, he worked with founders and startups in 26 countries in Europe, the Middle East, and North Africa. Meanwhile, his own startup was suffering at home. Probably looking back in lieu of that, I didn't feel super successful with the startup. Let's say we weren't a rocket ship. I think we maxed out at about 30 people. So I was looking for places where I could feel successful. And I was getting really good feedback from from passing on my advice to other founders around the world. I ended up doing a lot of traveling. We ended up uh, kind of the way we started in that process is we ended up hosting six or seven conferences around the world. And we call it Startup Adventure. And we brought along a lot of our friends, our speaker friends that were also investors or successful entrepreneurs or technical experts. And we brought them along and it was kind of this uh, show and tell format and uh, starting to build kind of relationships in the the different regions. Vitaly, tell me, so what were some of the common threads that you saw in these different places? Yeah, I mean, so what I noticed when I was traveling, I've been all over Asia, Southeast Asia, almost every country in Europe, Northern Africa. Latin America, you know, anywhere you can imagine where there's a tech hub. And what I noticed is that everybody was talking about the same problems, but with a different accent, right? So everybody is very, very similar. You know, that experience, by the way, I promised my daughter that if she gets into a good college, I'm going to pay for her gap year and I want her to travel and get similar experience in the world. One of the best educations. Absolutely. So yeah, it's very formative. And it, you know, I, I got to do that starting in my mid to late 20s. And I wish I did it earlier even. But it's something that most people don't get to do. But you know, the CCC startups thing that we did, that culminated with me just you know, being busy and focused and, and really not trying to... There's only so long you can kind of go all out if you have a family and all that it just doesn't work. So that's when I decided to sit down and write my book, Accelerate Startup, and really put all that advice into something that's a little bit of kind of a soup to nuts from idea, I call it from idea to product to company, and all the things that I learned. I'm still learning every day. And when I do a follow-up to it, I think I'd like to go a level deeper. But it, it was successful in the fact that I think one of my talents, if anything, is to be able to explain complicated things, complex things, and make them simpler and more digestible. And in all my workshops and public speaking and and now the book uh, that now came out four years ago, that seems to have come through and it's been translated now in Ukrainian, came out in December and is uh, used as a textbook at the number one business school in Ukraine. So one thing led to another, but more recently, you know, from everything that I did, I learned that I need to also say no a lot more and then really focus my efforts. So what companies have come out of Eastern Europe that you've influenced either by markets or by any brand names that, you know, that we recognize? So there are a few companies that came out of Ukraine and I've been on the board of the Ukraine Venture Capital and Private Equity Association for about, what, six years now. And it's been interesting to watch companies evolve and become better. Technology in Eastern Europe and Ukraine especially has always been great, but there was this lack of marketing and sales 
talent, experience. It's on a very base level. Part of it's historic because there was no marketing and sales culture in Soviet Union. Everything was master planned, so nobody's going to let you be too creative, although there were really talented people in that regard. But you can see that the products are becoming much more interesting. One I'm particularly proud of that I was directly involved is Remac Automobili, which is a started as a great little company in Croatia, a little bit outside of Zagreb. And I, I met the team in 2012 when I, along with Dave McClure and, and a bunch of people, went on trips that were called Geeks on a Plane. And we went and visited uh, a number of different places. I think I've done five or six Geeks on a Planes and many, many countries with, with Dave and, and a lot of really interesting people. But in this case, you know, again, coming back to my fascination with cars and then later motorcycles and, and everything else. These guys came out, they're a kind of ragtag group. They built a electric hypercar and they came and showed it to us. And I was looking at photos the other day of this prototype. It was like duct tape and toothpicks that they built this thing that had a thousand horsepower, just mind blowing numbers. It was a tiny team of eight. The, the CEO really started when he was like basically a 17 year old when he really started it. Never worked for anybody else. Genius and very nice guy. And met them then. A few years later, they were 200 person company producing products and services for others out of Croatia that had zero car industry before that. Miraculous. And I got involved in helping them raise their Series B, the first substantial round of financing. Ended up pulling in after a long journey of a couple of years because at that point, EVs were not like <laughs> like today. But you know, I brought him over to Silicon Valley. Mate, he grew a beard to look older. Uh, because he, he's very baby-faced and uh, set him up meetings with everybody I knew at top-tier VC firms as favors. And they kind of laughed him out of the room because he were, here he was raising, trying to raise $5 million for a car company. Was the EV infrastructure in place or was that part of the build as well? You need to build the EV infrastructure and the car? Yeah, I mean, it was the beginnings of electrification and Mate was convinced from day one, and he's dead on, is that everything's going to go electric. but he was it was a very unpopular opinion because here he is going up against you know the venerable brands of the world the bugattis the ferraris etc and he was going to field an electric hypercar you know it was the first electric hypercar so it was kind of struggle but ultimately we were successful that round became you know the company ran out of money several times there were some long long stories that I'll leave off for another episode that are fascinating but we ended up getting a chinese investor the largest automotive battery manufacturer in china they really wanted to do a joint venture and go after the chinese market so for that they were willing to lead the investment round porsche joined in that investment round and just this week a few days ago they finally unveiled their second car which is in the vera which is officially the fastest car in the world and they delivered on the promise so pretty miraculous. Now the company is well over a thousand people, well known worldwide, very well respected, but most people don't know the struggle and everything they went through in the last decade to get here. So I'm I'm very proud of that one. And and that goes a lot to say about it says a lot about the grit in Eastern Europe. I'd say even more so than Western Europe, where that that's a true entrepreneurial spirit. And if you just give them a chance, you're gonna see them be very, very competitive. So that one I'm very proud of. And that really kind of put me professionally, put me into the direction of mobility where I am today. Eventually, Vitaly decided it was time to get off the road and settle back in Silicon Valley. He leveraged his background guiding startups and eventually landed at HP, where he was a founding partner of the company's investment arm, HP 
tech ventures. It was a change for Vitaly because all of a sudden he was on the other side of the tech industry. No longer was he the scrappy entrepreneur. Now he was a seasoned venture capitalist looking for opportunities to invest in exciting new technologies. So I spent some time as a VC, and even though before that all the knees on my jeans were worn out from begging for money as an entrepreneur, I was on the other side of the table, and you really build up a filter and a truffle nose for what's special, what's fundable, and what rings the right bells and is the right flags, not the red flags. With that in mind, when I went to this kind of third side of the table, and I have a very unconventional path to investment banking, I am kind of the Benjamin Button of investment banking. Usually you go to business school, you go to investment banking, then you burn out and then you become a hippie or become an entrepreneur or go corporate. And I did it all backwards. So now I'm an investment banking partner where I focus on finding diamonds in the rough, let's say, more so than other investment bankers, because I have this builder, operator, investor background and I'm able to maybe have a better chance of recognizing talent earlier, work with these companies for a long time and not just go and do the transaction, but spend time and strategize with the team. And that's what I look for. I look for the companies that I would consider to be fundable, that are interesting, that are occupying a new space, that are launching a rocket you know, at the right space, and they will intersect that market at the right time. Sometimes I'm wrong, but I'm, I'm right more often than not, I'd like to believe. But it's just my culmination of background as an entrepreneur and as an investor. So now you're focusing primarily on transportation with Drake Star Partners. What kind of trends are you seeing now? When we talk about future mobility, there are generally two distinct areas that sometimes get they're related. But it's electrification and it's autonomy, right? And electrification is something that's quite interesting, and I don't think we've seen the final form yet because. Even with the battery electrics, there's a lot of compromise, right? It's, it's a very heavy car, usually because we have to carry these batteries around. Ultimately, if you, if, if we were to start from scratch, we'd probably choose, you know, uh, hydrogen in the form that it will be in a few years, right? The maturity. And Mercedes even had a, a show car that was pure hydrogen powered back 10 years ago that they took around the country. But we are here, you know, in part thanks to the kamikaze efforts of uh, Tesla. And they were able to kind of bullshit their way through the process and raise enough money to build something that was mainstream. They did a fantastic job building building the brand. And they were willing to do something as a startup. They're not a startup anymore. But they had this culture of doing things that the big boys were not willing to do. And they've been rewarded for it. But they haven't really made a profit yet from selling cars many, many years later. And now it's really getting interesting because in model year 2021, 2022, we're seeing 30 plus different cars that are launching that are pure electric. I'm particularly excited about some more than others, but you're seeing kind of this transition happening now to electrification, to battery electrics, and the infrastructure is now in place. It's great to see U.S. government back on track and pushing for the infrastructure that's needed because what we've seen in this market that has driven electrification more than anything, you know, 90% of it is from two things, government regulations and government stimulus. I'll give an example. In China, they made a decision at one point, I think it was probably after the Beijing Olympics, where they were ashamed about the, the air quality. At the point where they could, as soon as they could, they said, all the taxis in Beijing are going to be electric. And, you know, it's communism. <laughs> there's, no, there's no committee, there's no discussion. It gets done. So things like that were really major nudges, right, in, in behavioral economics. That's what we would call that. 
but they were big pushes. And then the incentives are, of course, you know, the, the tax credit that we enjoy in California and federally that kind of shift the balance and make it more economic to own an electric vehicle. So why wouldn't a common person who they don't really care for sports cars or any of that, they want to get to work efficiently, they want to take their kids to school and what have you and not worry about their vehicle or maintenance or gassing it up. So that infrastructure is very necessary. And everybody in the industry, there's kind of this impeding autonomy that everybody thinks about that's out there as a consumer and they expect that it's going to be there tomorrow. And then there's a reality that everybody in the industry knows that we are, you know, at least uh, a couple of more major breakthroughs in computation and in artificial intelligence before we have truly autonomous cars on the roads. So you're going to see the first areas of autonomy. You're going to see closed campuses where you have a very predictable environment you can automate. You're going to see it in farming, like with Monarch. You're going to see it in mining, right? All these controlled environments first. And then the on-road autonomy is going to be really last. And it's we're probably, you know, realistically, probably a, a real decade away from that being reality. So really exciting time to be alive. I do, in fact, uh, lead our mobility efforts at Drakestar. Drakestar is a number one mid-market investment bank in the U.S. and Europe. And we have tr- quite a track record in mobility uh, amongst our team. And what's exciting about it is that not only is this something that I'm passionate about as a car motorcycle guy, that's very easy to understand. But the other part of it is the $5 trillion market that's going through a change. Last time there was a change of this scale and it wasn't as valuable was 100 years ago, right? So we we're talking about a major transition in one of the most important business categories, if not the most important, that moves people and goods around the planet. So it's, it's really exciting to be part of that and working on things that are even more futuristic, like uh, Hyperloop is, is something that I'm also involved with. So if you're not familiar with Hyperloop, it's one of the biggest transportation undertakings in history. It's a groundbreaking form of high-speed ground transportation that could see passengers traveling between countries or even continents at more than 700 miles per hour. Companies around the world are racing to develop Hyperloop technology, and Vitaly is involved with one of them, Hyperloop TT. In 2013, again, Elon Musk famously published that white paper proposing the Hyperloop concept, which in itself wasn't that new, but they they put a really interesting new spin on it. And there were several different efforts that were organized shortly after that to go after this idea and realize it. And Hyperloop TT was the first company to do that. So they formed about six weeks after the white paper came out. They quickly did a feasibility study to see what technology exists and what's missing and can they really pull it off. And they realized that they need to kind of start from a clean sheet. And in their infinite wisdom, the team that was quite experienced at that point, they've had several IPOs behind them, they realized that they need to build a new industry more than just a new company. And that was quite an undertaking. So there's a couple of Harvard business case studies on them. I encourage people to read because they're fascinating. But what they ended up doing is kind of crowdsourcing that project. And even today, seven years later or more, the company has about 50 core people, but it has over 800 individual contributors and over 50 partner companies that are on the cap table that own a piece of the company for their contributions in technology and their efforts, et cetera. And what people don't realize, because Hyperloop has been talked about for so many years as kind of this very futuristic thing, is that we're really only a few years away at this point from buying a ticket and riding it. And that will really change the world because we're talking about kind of middle distance, let's say, travel that will be at the speed of sound. And we're not talking about boom airplanes. That's, that's a really exciting development that we're probably going to see in the 2030s 
where we can, again, travel faster than the speed of sound between continents. In this case, we're talking about going from city center to city center very, very quickly in a fully net zero energy, actually not positive energy, generating system that generates more more electricity than it uses, being in a near vacuum environment and going, for example, from city center San Francisco to city center LA in about 40 minutes. That's what we're talking about. So let's shift gears one more time. You talk a lot about the mental side of entrepreneurship. And I want to understand what kind of toll can a startup culture take on someone? I would just go back to this really important step. You know, once I went through this really tough entrepreneurial journey and it affected me personally very heavily, you know, it's probably responsible for the devolution of my first marriage. (laughs) And a lot of people really struggle because they have to be out there cheerleading and saying everything is amazing, everything is great, and put up a nice smiling face out to the outside world, but inside they're very miserable. And for people that are supporting entrepreneurs, you know, their spouses, their family, their friends, they need to be aware of this and they need to understand how difficult it is that these, you know, this journey that people are going through. And for the people going through that journey is just uh, try to have some healthy separation about this whole thing. So that's something that I think is universal and very important for entrepreneurs to, to really keep in mind. So do you see these young entrepreneurs that you're working with experience the same types of things that you once did? The struggle is very much real. <laughs> I would say, yeah, it's very important. So as a VC, if you're leading around, you are signing up to go with that company through thick and thin. And it's harder to get divorced, you know, investors and, and entrepreneurs to get divorced from each other than from your spouse. So you're certainly taking on that responsibility and you're going to get that call at midnight when things are not going well. So that's going to be very important. The other thing is, I would say, a lot of people do struggle and as an advisor now, I am very careful about how I bring, you know, for example, bad news that the deal didn't come together, for example. Or I, I try to take some of the burden on my shoulders and do the pitching, the things that are difficult for them. So all these things, I would say, are important to keep in mind that it's very difficult and I'm certainly cognizant of it. And I try to uh, make it easier for entrepreneurs and remind them that if they lost a, a, a battle, they didn't lose the war and that it's okay things go wrong. And it's much easier from, you know, looking outside in, being objective in the situation than somebody from the inside looking out. That was Vitaly Ghulam. While he's invested in dozens of startups over the years, it's been over a decade since he founded a company of his own. Remember, this is a guy who was hosting raves and building websites for thousands of dollars before he was 20 years old. Vitaly says being an entrepreneur definitely took its toll on him, which was at least partially responsible for him gravitating toward the investment side of Silicon Valley. He says the role of coach and mentor has served him well over the years, but he's starting to think about getting back into the startup game himself. He didn't want to give anything away, but he told me he doesn't think he's done. At some point in the next few years, he said he'll be ready to jump back onto the entrepreneurial playing field. Before It Happened is produced by me, Donna Laughlin, along with Studio Pod Media. The executive producer is Katie Sunku Wood, and all episodes are written and developed by Jack Brewer. Our show coordinator is Deanna Morency, with additional editing and music provided by Noda Labs.